From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. The conversation you're about to hear is from the archives here at CTI. Back in 2012, CTI organized an international symposium at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. One of the main speakers at that event was the late Robert Bella, a scholar whose work is simply staggering in its breadth and erudition. Bella died in 2013. In 2012, Bella had recently published his magnum opus, the 700-page book, Religion and Human Evolution. And the conversation you're about to hear is a discussion of that book, beginning with responses by four scholars, Niels Gregerson from the University of Copenhagen, David Sloan Wilson from Binghamton University, Jayakiran Sebastian from the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and Kang Fi Song, a theologian based in Hong Kong. Following their remarks, Bella provides a fascinating response. The conversation begins with an introduction by CTI director William Storr. Now, for those who haven't had a chance to read Bella's book on religion and human evolution, I'd like to share a passage that's but one example of Bella's brilliance. Setting it up, he, he's talking about Abraham Maslow and Maslow's discussion of various forms of human cognition. He writes, Most of the time in daily life, we are operating with a narrowly pragmatic consciousness, with what Maslow calls decognition, and we don't see symbols, or at least we don't consciously see them. At times, however, even in the midst of daily life, we experience a decognition when something ordinary becomes extraordinary, becomes symbolic. Abraham Maslow once in my presence told of such a decognition. He was serving as chair of the Department of Psychology at Brandeis and was expected to attend the graduation ceremony in full academic regalia. He'd avoided such events previously, considering them silly rituals. But, he said, as a procession began to move, he suddenly saw it as an endless procession. Far, far ahead, at the very beginning of the procession, was Socrates. Quite a way back, but still well ahead of Maslow, was Spinoza. Then just ahead of him was Freud, followed by his own teachers and himself. Behind him, stretching endlessly, were his students and his students' students, generation after generation as yet unborn. Maslow assured us that what he experienced was not a hallucination. Rather, it was a particular kind of insight, an example of B cognition. It was also, I would suggest, the apprehension of the academic procession as a symbol, standing for the true university as a sacred community of learning, transcending time and space. He was in a sense apprehending the real basis of any actual university. One could say that if we can no longer glimpse that sacred foundation, the actual university would collapse. For the real university is neither a wholesale knowledge outlet for the consumer society, nor an instrument in the class struggle though the actual university is a bit of both. But if the university does not have a fundamental symbolic reference point that transcends the pragmatic considerations of the world of working 
and is in tension with those considerations, then it has lost its raison d'etre. So that's Robert Bella writing in the first chapter of his 2012 book, Religion and Human Evolution. I like to think that in that academic procession that begins in the distant past with Socrates and even before, and which stretches forward to our own time and to future generations, Bella himself is way out ahead of us, beckoning us forward. Thanks for joining the conversation. Everyone knows uh, Bob's work um, from his remarkable book, Habits of the Heart, which changed the public conversation in America and around the world on the values and beliefs that shape our common life. But when I think of you, uh, Dr. Bella, I think of your wonderful book, The Good Society. And I think the theme that brings us all around this table together is our commitment to the good society whether we are evolutionary biologists coming at it from a personally secular perspective or people of faith in the Jewish, Muslim, and Christian traditions, uh, we are all working for the good society. Uh, And I think what we're doing this morning in introducing you as our first speaker is benchmarking our aspiration for this symposium. And there could not be a finer, uh, more qualified scholar to lead our conversation on what it means to be the good society seeking progress for the human spirit and human flourishing than this extraordinary social scientist who is global research before global research became fashionable uh, in East Asia uh, and here in North America has really transformed the way we through the sociological lens see the world. So you have set the tone for this conversation and the aspiration Dr. Bella and you will lead us in a moment with this profound um, uh, magisterial work on evolution, uh, religion in human evolution. A special welcome to Dr. Bella. We begin our first session on religion in human evolution, this extraordinary book, this magnum opus, and no better book uh, to take the long view uh, than this. I would now invite the first of our three panelists to open the symposium, Professor Niels Gregerson uh, from the University of Copenhagen. Niels, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Will, and let me say that it's a great privilege to be part of this symposium in honor of the legacy of Sir John, and uh, I thank you for extending the invitation to me. Let me begin by saying that uh, one rarely uh, comes across a work of such width and erudition, as well as also theoretical ambition as Robert Bella's Religion in Human Evolution, The topic itself, of course, is highly controversial. What is religion finally about? What is the status of religion in the past and and today? Bella simply aims to understand the ramifications of religious life as part of larger social and cultural transformations. So we have to ask what is new and what may even be seen as progressive. While Bella studies religious formations that are long gone, his argument is that the mentality of our forefathers are still with us today. Nothing is ever lost, as he says. Religion, along with science and art, are results of the 
peculiar human capacity to go offline, as we do when we fall asleep and dream, as we do when we play, but also when we do when we are exercising the specific human capacity of symbolic transcendence. Now, Robert Bella is a sociologist who, really, who, who clearly situates himself in Emile Durkheim's praxis-oriented and moral understanding of religion. Listen to his opening definition of religion. Religion is a system of beliefs and practices relative to the sacred that unite those who adhere to them in a moral community. Eventually, however, it is my sense that Bella also addresses aspects of religious life that goes beyond the function of creating moral bonds. Even if far from all religions refer to a personal God, there is always, so Bella, something personal about religious life. Religious representations have to do with unitive experiences in which human beings participate actively. Here, religious practitioners are not just united with one another, but with overarching horizons of meaning, it seems. While play and ritual can be traced back to pre-human lineages, it seems that the capacity for symbolic transcendence may be a human prerogative. Here, Bella stands in line with Terence Deacon's The Symbolic Species and with Wenzel van Heusten's Gifford Lectures Alone in the World where he likewise argues that the institutional animal behavior such as territoriality, ritualization, and play may be seen as precursors of the human sense of sacred uh, place and time, of ritual and myth, ecstasy, and mysticism. This then leads me to the first part of my question to Robert Bella. Um, while he shows that religion is similar to other human offline experiences, then we still need to, to think about what then is the specific about the religious mentality in relation to other forms of play, dreaming and going offline that may not always be characterized as, as uh, religious. It seems to me that while, Bolo, that while uh, Bello, uh, uh, Bella follows Dirk Aim in defining religious life by the distinction between the sacred and the profane, he's also reformulating these distinctions in, in, uh, through other distinctions that may be more accessible to modern readers. Think of the dis distinction between being online or going offline. Think of the distinction of Alfred Schütz between living in the communal world of daily life versus going beyond the world of common sense. Or think of Abraham Maslow's distinction between a deficiency cognition related to the fulfillment of our basic needs versus being cognition about simply being there and understanding the world. My question, the second part of my question, is whether these otherwise helpful contrastive distinctions can and should be extrapolated back to the early phases of tribal religion. I don't think that one needs to go as far as Lucien Lévy-Brühl did to suggest a pan-sacral consciousness in early human development. But it seems to me questionable to suggest that early religion did not also have cognitive orientation and cognitive value. Let me take totemism as an example. The relation between a group and an individual and their totem was hardly just a question of inner group self-identification. 
not just a question of distinguishing between what is of sacred salience and what belongs to ordinary affairs. It was also a question of recognition and survival. Totemistic bonds existed between human hunters and their prey. Bonds and meanings were not produced, were not just produced in order to establish a unity within the group, but also between the group and what was outside the group necessary for the survival of the group. The mana of the animal is out there, and in the totemization, human groups are attuning themselves to this reality. In this sense, I wonder whether Bella is right when stating that ritual clearly precedes myth. Were there any, ever any rituals without somehow formulated or intuition, intuitive conceptions of general order? It seems to me that what religion does is to combine a wide scope view of reality with a focus on what is important for human beings, like the totem. In this sense, it seems that religion may have both cognitive but also orientational value, having to do with how to proceed in life, how to do the right thing. Bella's fundamental point is to, is to think about what came up in the axial age in the period 800 to 300 BCE in, in four different cultures, Israel, China, Greece, and India. And there's much to be said about this, which I think I will leave to the other uh, panelists. I just want to focus on one point. To what extent should we expect that there has been an emergence of the theoretic in the axial age? Robert Bella is acutely aware of the fact that second-order theorizing, thinking about thinking as such, cannot easily be identified in any of the axial cultures. The covenant between Israel, sorry, between Israel and Yahweh is maintained. The laws of Chen are preserved in Confucianism. The Vedic tradition is faithfully trans transmitted in later Hindu culture. Even Plato uh, continues to interpret myths in his own artistic ways. Bella is aware that second-order theorizing cannot be seen as a defining point of axial culture on its own. Um, nonetheless, I think that the theoretic may be too strong a part. I would rather say it has to be with denouncing uh, or renouncing the uh, prior archaic notion that there is a, a whole complex of, of, uh, of, uh, um, of uh, transcendent reality and the the political reality of kings and other rulers. It is the this denouncing effect, as I see it, rather than the, the establishment of a theoretical culture per se that came up in axial age. This then leads me to the last observation concerning the future forms of religious life, as discussed by Bella. Bella occasionally refers to some thinkers as post-axial uh, post thinkers. And in the end of his book, he ends up in what I think is a sort of indecision, if I may say so. On the one hand, Bella takes side with Wilfred Campbell Smith that we might refer to God as a common point of all religions while aiming to include the whole of human religiosity in our perspective without privileging any uh, kind of tradition. 
This proposal, however, seems to me to include a personal stance above all lived religions and hence to, be a, to assume a sort of discarnate uh, uh, form of religion uh, and de-ritualized form. The, the pathway proposed by Cantwell Smith seems to me to stand in some tension with another influence on Bella's work coming from Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. Bella is coding him for saying, we must not ignore the fact that a commitment to a specific orientation outweighs the Catholicity in imagery. One may be a sensitive and seasoned traveler, at ease in many places, but one must have a home. Home is always home for someone, and there is no absolute home in a general sense. So I think that there is a tension here between Bella's repeated emphasis and rightly so, on the inescapable embodied nature of religion as always ritualized. And on the other hand, on his insistence that something fully new came up in the axial age, not fully new, but new came up in the axial age in four different civilizations in terms of, of, of uh, creating a, a theoretic attitude. A last sentence. It seems to me that, that if that we... That if there is anything that suggests that we actually do find ourselves in a new axial age, different from the axial age in the first millennium, it is because we are travelers, we are travelers in a new sense. The social conditions of living as itinerants have now, due to information technology and traveling, become a condition for a still larger part of the population of this world. The difference is that we are not just traveling uh, uh, within our culture, but between culture. Yet traveling is never without departure, and most travelers tend to gravitate around a few points of departure and arrival, even when the orbits of traveling are, are vast and bring us far away from home. Thank you. Niels, thank you very much indeed. I'm now going to invite David. David, we have a, a, a seat further up the table for you. Would you mind coming up to this end? Be more. I don't want to be out in limbo there. No, up here on, on the right here. Would you come up here? That'll be great for the conversation later. And it's my great privilege now to introduce uh, David Sloan Wilson, who is the SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biological Sciences and Anthropology at Binghamton University in New York State. David. Very warm welcome. Sorry to make you a traveler at this table. Uh, I'll give you a moment, um, but we're honored uh, now to invite uh, David uh, to give a response to Bella's book. Thank you. Welcome, David. Seriously think about uh, religion from an evolutionary uh, perspective. And there has been a wonderful convergence, I think, over the last uh, decade onto a view that, um, that um, um, we can call Durkheimian and Weberian, which is uh, so interesting because uh, that has not been part of the evolutionary conversation for a long time. And in addition to uh, Dr. Bella's scholarship in, 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 uh, in relating his body of, of knowledge based in sociology to, um, to evolution, evolutionists have also gravitated a long way towards uh, the disciplines of sociology and cultural anthropology, especially with respect to symbolic systems and... Um, and um, uh, culture and culture as an inheritance system. You mentioned Terry Deacon as one of the pioneers in his book called The Symbolic 
uh, species. And so I think that we have what uh, Edward O. Wilson calls consilience taking place here. We have, we have a, a, a convergence of academic disciplines uh, for the first time in, in literally from the beginning. Uh, Durkheim was not, uh, Durkheim's ideas was not associated with evolution at the time that he arose. He talked about groups as functional units, but he did not think of that in evolutionary terms, as strange as that might seem today. But today we recognize the concept of a good society as a deeply evolutionary question. How can there be a good society, a society whose members work for, for their common good? That is a deep evolutionary question. And the role of religious systems and cultural systems and actually uh, um, uh, causing groups to form into moral communities, as Durkheim put it, is something that we are beginning to understand. I think that uh, I would like to frame my question um, in terms of Geertz's definition, which begins um, Dr. Bella's book, a system of symbols, this is uh, his definition of religion, a system of symbols that, when enacted by human beings, establishes powerful, pervasive, and long-lasting moods and motivations that make sense in terms of an idea of a general order of existence. And that is paired with Durkheim's definition that we just uh, heard. Religion is a system of beliefs and practices relative to the sacred that unite those who adhere to them in a moral community. Uh, neither of these definitions mentions God, as Dr. Bella notes. And I, the way I'd like to frame my question for Dr. Bella is to actually look both forward and backward to a time when religion was very different than our modern-day religions, and perhaps to a time in the future when they might be different still. And one of the hot topics among my evolutionist colleagues is how did the uh, what we call the moral high gods emerge? Because if you look in earlier sort of tribal religions, what you find is is that there is belief in supernatural agents, but they are not they they don't have your interest in mind necessarily. And so, how did the emergence of of, of powerful supernatural agents that are moralistic and judge you on the basis of your behavior? That, that has not always been the nature of religion. And so it's a fascinating question. If uh, prior to that time, how is it possible to have to have this system of belief, system of symbols that creates a moral community, but without agents that are actually moral agents in their own right? That's a very different form of religion, and I think that uh, um, that's a wonderful thing to understand. And Dr. Bella is helping us to understand that. And then looking into the future, I want to quote um, a remarkable quote from the Dalai Lama, the most recent Templeton Prize winner, who said, uh, all the world's major religions, with their emphasis on love, compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, can and do promote inner values. But the reality of the world today is that grounding ethics in religion is no longer adequate. This is why I am increasingly convinced that the time has come to find a way of thinking about spirituality uh, um, and ethics beyond religion altogether. A remarkable statement from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Now, I don't think the Dalai Lama was talking about religion in the Geertzian sense. And so there's a very interesting question as to, with an expanded definition of religion as a system of symbols that when acted by human beings establishes powerful, pervasive, and so on, how is it possible for our current religions to do that well, for the ancient religions to do that well, despite being very different in their forms, and for future systems of symbols to do that well, even though they might look very different than our current religion? I'm now delighted to introduce um, 
Professor uh, Jack Heeren Sebastian, who is the Dean of the Lutheran Theological Seminary here in Philadelphia. Not traveled so far, but really uh, I'm inviting a dear friend and colleague over many years from India, uh, where he was till recently Professor of Theology in, in Bangalore. But welcome to you, uh, Kieran. We're honored to have you here, and we invite your response now. Thank you, Will. After reading through this magnificent and insightful book, one can easily enter into a state of wonder and bask in the glow of having been accelerated by encountering the rich offering of a welcoming master. But this is not what Robert Bella wants us to do. Instead, he invites us into an ongoing and deepening conversation, a conversation where one does not return to the reality of one's discipline or even the messiness of everyday life with the same eyes and following a predictable routine, but challenged and motivated to use these eyes to see and perceive things in a vastly different manner. This is evident in his comments on Aristotle and Plato, where he says, most remarkably, instead of being overwhelmed by his predecessor, Aristotle was able calmly to look around the new world that Plato had opened up and explore its many possibilities without rancor, though certainly not evading a good argument when he needed one. We are called to be in this position, learning, studying, interacting, interrogating, arguing, and through all this being enlivened and enriched. To get back to our welcoming master, listen to him in one of the evocative footnotes that makes the reading of this book such a pleasure. Talking about cosmic history, he refers to some important books and also to some websites that he has checked to see if what was said in the books had been superseded. He goes on, most of cosmic history is so staggering in terms of time, size, speed, and heat as to tax my imagination. So I can only recount what I barely understand. The master who barely understands? This is a sign of the true master, someone who invites you to think along with him. This thinking cuts across generations, time, cultures, and even space. Talking about one of the maxims of Marcus Aurelius's meditations, he concedes, I might also note that Marcus's comments are a rebuke to my earlier comment on the cheerlessness of the cosmic meta-narrative. Well... What we have in this book is certainly a meta-narrative filled with exquisite details, with meticulous unpacking of texts and contexts, with people and places coming alive, with dangling and tantalizing questions that offer a fertile field for further investigation. A meta-narrative, but a book that is awash in a sea of stories, a book that is a history of histories and a story of stories, many of which have been made part of his story, in and through his take on ancient Israel, Greece, China, and India, and offers us a fresh entryway into the understanding of our own story. For the purpose of, purposes of this symposium, and as my contribution to this conversation, let me focus on my one question, that of the so-called ordinary people. This is a question that Bella does not shy away from, and his book is packed with references to such people. Talking about rulers and ruling class ideology in Hawaii, he asks, what did the commoners think of all these goings on? And then using the sources at hand and reading and rereading them, he tries to tease out the impact of religion 
and religious practices on the life of ordinary people. Similarly, in talking about the real elite in ancient Egypt, which was a close-knit group of a few hundred people, he points out that the lives of most of the ancient Egyptians were hard and all too often brief. While he recognizes that for most people the power of the court penetrated deep into the countryside and into their lives in multiple ways, his assessment of the lives of other ancient people, including the Israelites, indicates that most people in archaic societies continue to live in small face-to-face groups and have a ritual life of their own, only loosely articulated with the great royal rituals at the imperial center and resembling in many ways the ritual life of tribal societies. He goes on to point out that even within this large group, there was nevertheless a significant minority who were able to elaborate the tradition well beyond what the texts themselves indicated. The massive inequality in ancient societies and the reality that what passes for civilization rested on some kind of coming to terms with and an acceptance of this diversity does not escape his penetrating gaze. Quoting other writers, Bella notes that the very idea of freedom so central in Greece and in later Western civilization was intelligible only in contrast to the unfree status of slaves. That is, a society without slaves would not have developed that particular notion of freedom. In other words, religious imagination and social stratification go together in ways we need to interrogate today, even as we recognize that, as Bella points out in relation to texts from ancient China, because our texts concern the warrior elite virtually exclusively, we know little about the farmer and artisan classes. It is, incumbent, it is incumbent upon us to take these classes seriously as we wrestle with what we have inherited in terms of artifacts and texts and not let the subaltern voices go unheard and their lives pass unnoticed. And so, briefly, to India, a place and an area that Bella is only too quick to point out is something with which he entered into with more than a little trepidation. In terms of the present, after a visit to India, the Australian writer David Malouf noted, the fear of India. It comes in many forms. Fear of dirt, fear of illness, fear of people, fear of the unavoidable presence of misery, fear of a phenomenon so dense and plural that it might, in its teeming inclusiveness, swamp the soul and destroy our certainty that the world is there to be read but is also readable. Can I try to reassure him by saying that we Indians enter into a study of India with certainly something more than a little trepidation. After having read and reread this chapter, all I can say is that the insights and strategies of reading, as well as the choice of text to be highlighted and the exploration of the issues that emerge, Bella shows himself to be someone whom you would like to have as a key member of the group guiding you through this wondrous and wounded civilization. Given that my task is also to continue the conversation, and given that I have spoken so much about the seriousness with which Bella takes the lives of common, ordinary people, 
I would like to state that the ongoing questions that we wrestle with in India are questions relating to the 15 or more percent of people formerly labeled outcast and untouchable, now proudly using the term Dalit, the crushed, the broken, the ones who are the victims of the impact of the caste system coming out on the side of pollution in the purity and pollution debate, those whom the great texts relegate to being outside the margins, unworthy of even hearing, and certainly incapable of understanding the great texts, those whose subjugated position some of these texts legitimized in religious terms as belonging to the fundamental, disjointed, and hierarchical nature of society and religion. The persistence of poverty and caste in India leads us to ask about a context where karma, something Bella problematizes using Buddhist texts, fatalism and resignation, seem to persist along with unbridled capitalism, resulting in the continuation of the glaring and unrelenting contradictions in Indian society. How do we continue to deal with the degrading effects of pollution and ongoing legitimation of purity, where interdining and intermarriage is still rare? The contribution of certain aspects of the Indian philosophical tradition, which saw and affirmed the reality of the divine in each person, in each thing, must be seen in interaction with other strands of the same philosophical tradition, which cruelly and systematically denied value and worth to vast sections of the population, especially the Dalits, seeing only karma in operation in the squalor and hopelessness to which they had been condemned by their own fate and deeds in a previous birth or births. Unquestioning submission to this harsh reality and absolute obedience to the existing social order and expectation was the price to be paid by those who could utilize the realities of the present as a springboard into a better future in a forthcoming life. We need to learn from Bella as one who offers a new way of seeing and doing, a new possibility of shying away from all theories of predestination and condemnation to a possibility of recognizing that the ordinary people, the ones who have been pushed aside, the ones who are victims of the carefully and elaborately drawn up social and economic systems, have been pushed aside precisely because their presence and labor is indispensable in sustaining these systems. In and through reading, digesting, and now internalizing the insights of this magisterial work, we pause and re recollect our ongoing task of being public intellectuals to continue to offer comfort to those discarded on the way and offer a corrective and sustained interrogation of those who would hurry along with and be born along the tide of consumerism and profitability, where countless fellow human beings are reduced to being the discardable byproducts of our globalized society across the world. And, in Bella's words, make just a bit more likely a world civil society that could at last restrain the violence of state-organized societies toward each other and the environment.
March. We've had three very distinctive contributions from a theologian uh, and a scientist and a theologian and public intellectual. And I now invite you, Bob, to, to respond in your own time. Well, this is all a little overwhelming <laughs> because I didn't see quite one question each. I saw more like five each. I did try. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will try to summarize. I, I, oh, first of all, I, I'm, I want to uh, uh, indicate my gratitude uh, to the Templeton Foundation and uh, uh, to the founder who, whose centenary we are celebrating. Uh, I certainly have been benefited uh, by uh, some aid from the foundation in completing this rather large work of mine. And I know of many other excellent uh, uh, pieces of work that have all similarly uh, benefited. Uh, so it's a great foundation. Its work is marvelous. And it's a pleasure to be here uh, on this occasion. I also have one more uh, uh, point to make, and that is that uh, David Sloan Wilson was kind enough early on in my work uh, to communicate with me by email. I had read his Darwin's Cathedral and profited from it, and he did uh, give me some pointers and set me on my way. One of the things that uh, I just I want to recognize him, which he probably didn't get enough recognition in the, in the book. Uh, but uh, uh, my book would not have been written without the possibility of email. Uh, I would have needed another uh, uh, 15 or 20 years if I'd had to visit or uh, write uh, handwritten letters to people all over the world. The fact that I could reach people by email and that in many cases, as in David's case, they were kind enough to respond and answer my questions uh, was an absolutely amazing advantage, particularly in uh, time. And uh, some of those that I consulted were too busy uh, to uh, help me. But many of them, and they were very distinguished uh, people, uh, did take the time to respond, sometimes with several pages of uh, single-spaced comments uh, uh, pointing out where I was wrong. Uh, there are many things wrong in this book, but there would be many more if I hadn't had a global uh, uh, community. And many of these people I've never met. I never met David before. I haven't really shaken his hands, but he's here. <laughs> so uh, I have to thank the, uh, whatever my own ambivalence about certain aspects of modernity, I will say that uh, for a scholar, it's just indispensable at this point. Um, on many of the issues, there is a, a tendency to return to the question of definition. Uh, I am highly ambivalent about definition. Um, I gave two fairly different definitions, <laughs> and I didn't say I was going to stick with either one. Uh, and I'm reminded of, uh, uh, besides Durkheim, 
the great sociologist who paved the way for me in many ways more than Durkheim, even though uh, I'm closer to Durkheim in some ways intellectually, and that's Max Weber. And Max Weber wrote a very long section in his massive work, Economy and Society, called The Sociology of Religion. And in English, it's translated in a book that's at least 300 pages long. He says in the first paragraph, he says, I'm not going to define religion because you'll see what it is when I go along. He says, I'll give you a definition at the end. You get to the end, you look for the definition. (laughs) Where is it? He never gives us a definition. Uh, uh, And I I think the the definition is... uh, present in the examples. <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, uh, definitions are helpful to get you started, and that's why I used two of them early on. But really, religion is such, a ma- uh, such an important dimension of human existence that uh, uh, you can't really put uh, boundaries around it. It keeps slipping out. You know, uh, 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 um, uh, Stephen Jay Gould uh, spoke of uh, religion and science as non-overlapping magisteria. And I, uh, I've learned a lot from him. I've also learned that he, he is the subject of a lot of criticism by other biologists. Uh, in many cases, I got into areas where the people that I was uh, relying on didn't agree. So I just put in all the different sides and uh, sort of uh, went with the ones that seemed to make most sense to me. But uh, I much appreciate uh, 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 the idea of these being two magisteria. In many of the uh, discussions we've had so far, and many of the books, and perhaps all of them, there is an insistence that uh, religion and science are related they're not exactly the same thing. And to try to reduce one to the other is a huge mistake. Uh, Religion is not an early form of science. We just didn't quite get it right, and now we don't need it anymore because we've got it right. Uh, On the other hand, there's a part of uh, Gould's idea that I have to reject. They do overlap. They're not Uh, non-overlapping. You can't do a serious book on religion today without knowing a lot of science. And uh, as I found in reading a wide variety of scientists, they're always getting into the religious act, Uh, sometimes showing how little they know about religion, but nonetheless, they have an impulse to say something about it. Uh, Terence Deacon is one, uh, and and, uh, Terry is another person that helped me because he's uh, on the Berkeley campus. Uh, uh, So... Uh, they inevitably overlap. Uh, It's just that we don't want to reduce them one to another. Um, If I can get to a few of the specific issues, the question of whether a myth must precede ritual. Uh, Here, of course, I'm following Merlin Donald, and Donald's point is that uh, what he calls mimetic is a a move beyond... uh, uh, episodic consciousness and it does involve communication it involves the body 
uh, uh, as a form of relating to other people, the use of the body to say something. And therefore, I think it is possible to think uh, that uh, there is a content to a wordless ritual. There are actually rituals, as I describe in my book, where there is some kind of singing going on, but nobody knows what the words mean. <laughs> and it seems to work. Uh, uh, so uh, I think you can do a, a, a lot of powerful communication with the body. And not, not mimetic is a problematic word because we think of mime as, as silent. But that's not what Donald means. It's the use of the whole body, including the vocal cords, but not with a, a, a true uh, linguistic effect. Uh, uh, so uh, I would defend Donald on, on, that, on that particular point. Um, as to the, uh, the theoretical and the axial age, I would say it's n- never more than emergent. It's pretty emergent in Greece. And Donald himself is sure only that Greece is, uh, is uh, axial. Uh, uh, but uh, it's theoretical and, and axial in the sense of theoretical. Uh, my rather looser definition is uh, notes that moment in which religious uh, 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 perception moves beyond concern for the in-group. Tribal religion almost overwhelmingly is concerned with the in-group and is with the solidarity of the in-group versus other groups. Other groups may be often in uh, tribal societies. Tribal is a complex word, which I won't defend, uh, but uh, it's the better the only thing I have. But uh, in these non-literate societies, often the definition for human being and the definition for their group is the same. <laughs> so those human beings are somewhere else, they're not human beings. It doesn't necessarily mean that they think they should be killed or that they hate them or something. They just simply don't. They're not on the same radar. They're a different. They're a different, like a different species. Uh, and I think in each axial cage, axial case, there is a recognition that we are, as uh, Confucius said, all, all within the four seas, all under heaven, our brothers. Uh, one of the uh, anecdotes of, of one of Confucius's chief uh, disciples, uh, some, somebody came to him and said, uh, everybody I know has a brother, and I have no brother, and my life is so so bad because I have no brother. And this Confucius disciple says, what do you mean you have no brother? What are you talking about? Everyone in the world is your brother. Any educated man knows that. Don't come crying to me because you have no brother uh, when I see that you have brothers everywhere. Now, that's, that is a universalistic axial recognition. You just don't find that in tribal societies. Uh, And whether, uh, I mean, Confucians were not big on formal logic, but but, uh, they did have this sense that uh, there is a universal ethic, that heaven is the heaven of everyone, not just the Chinese. Uh, In fact, Confucius said, sometimes the barbarians 
are better than we are. In fact, I have to say, the barbarians are the Chinese and we are the barbarians. So, uh, uh, yes, there is the image of the central country, and it does, unfortunately, still have some bearing on present behavior, bad behavior from that part of the world. I was in China twice last year, and I was absolutely thrilled with the openness and critical uh, capacity of intellectuals to say anything they want. Just stay inside the university. Don't go to Tiananmen Square and say that or you'll go to jail. But there's freedom in China, amazing freedom, and you can't bottle it up like that. They, they can't. Anyway, I'm getting off the beat here. But I'm trying to make the point that there is in Confucianism a deep sense of human beings as a whole and not just Chinese, even in a relatively self-centered culture like that one. I think only the United States compares with China in thinking we are the only country in the world that's really important, uh, um, which is very bad because China and the U.S. have to get together or we're going to sink under the disasters of the, of the present century. Um, well, I, I think I'm running out of my time. I'll tell you, plenty of time. I don't uh, know if you want to respond to David, David Sloan Wilson. Um, well, yes, uh, this whole concern with uh, um, uh, judgmental gods who punish and reward and so on, uh, which I know a lot of the uh, evolutionary psychologists are very fixed on, it seems to me so heavily weighted uh, by our own religious tradition. Um, the... Uh, the notion that the study of religion is the study of whether gods are going to smash you or reward you. Uh, I mean, yes, you have a certain amount of that in the Hebrew scriptures and, and Christians and, and certainly in Islam. Uh, and because uh, if you put Christians and Muslims and uh, Jews together, they make up over half the human race, there's a tendency to think that's what religion is. I see this all the time. Uh, but if you look at India and China, uh, they're not so preoccupied with it. Yes, if you mess up in, uh, in India, you're going to pay for it in the next world. But it's not because some god is going to come down and do that to you. That's karma that works that way. Uh, it's a very different way of thinking. You're not always concerned about uh, whether you're going to be beaten up or rewarded by some abstract deity. And heaven, tin in in, in Chinese thought, is in a very vague and general sense concerned with right and wrong. But most Chinese have spent most of their uh, time saying, heaven, what's, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? Why don't you come and help us? Because everything is so bad. And uh, uh, heaven seems to be fairly distant in, uh, in Confucianism and certainly not active like uh, 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 Yahweh or the God of the New Testament. Uh, so I, I feel that the uh, preoccupation and, and some of their readings of uh, non-literate societies just strike me as really bizarre. Uh, I've I found in the writings of the uh, new atheists, I read a lot of Dawkins because I wanted to know what he really said. He's a brilliant man. He, he's a great scientist. He's done some really path-breaking work, uh, no question. And he writes beautifully. He's a great science writer. 
He told me things in relatively simple language that I didn't know before. But when he talks about religion, it's astounding. For a scientist, would he read a, a work by a biologist who knew nothing about biology with any seriousness? I mean, the degree of ignorance, of absolute ignorance, is so astounding that uh, I, I, I don't know how a scientist has the nerve to write uh, long tracts on something about which his ignorance is so staggering. And Pascal Boyer was a big name. He knows nothing. I mean, the degree of ignorance of that man is just stunning. If you, religion is a hard field. It's got an enormous amount of variation in facts. I've spent my whole life studying in great detail, and I am not going to take seriously people who... I, uh, there was a, a proposal for a study of uh, comparative uh, religion, and uh, people were out at... Uh, MBAs in, uh, from business schools and they had uh, statistical degrees and they had no, no background in religion but they were going to tell us well, what is true and what is false in religion uh, uh, the, the lack the, the notion that religion is a field that you can deal with anybody can deal with without any background <laughs> is widespread among certain kinds of people who think they are scientifically studying religion uh, that's certainly not the case with, uh, uh, with David. The, the virtue of, of, uh, of uh, Darwin's cathedral is that he knows what he's talking about. He's taken the time and care to really study the cases that he wants to analyze. That's why I admire that book and single it out as unusual among a lot of stuff which is based on so much ignorance. Um, so that's a little diatribe about that. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, I think uh, I, I will close with a comment of Sebastian's. Uh, I did say in, towards the end of my conclusion that all serious work has what uh, Jürgen Habermas calls a practical intent. And if... Uh, you can see in my book a concern for those who have been left out and who have suffered and that that is a condition that we are all called upon to do something about. And I, I, I've read enough Indian intellectuals today to know how concerned they are themselves. Uh, these things are deeply embedded in, in society and hard to change. But uh, we are all called upon uh, to uh, 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 take an ethical position, I think. Uh, we can't uh, claim that we have special intellectual uh, ethical insight because we are uh, uh, scientists or scholars, uh, but we do have a responsibility to uh, 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 take a position, especially when we see the many bad things that have been done by religion. I used to begin my course on sociology of religion, which was my main undergraduate course, by saying uh, <clears throat> religion is responsible for the noblest things humans have ever done. And religious, religion is responsible for the most horrible things humans have ever done. It's, it's not a question of good and bad. Religion is good. and Religion is... Uh, one of the deepest and most ineradicable dimensions of human life. 
that it would ever imaginably be totally good when politics, economics, and any, every other f field is full of horror. I mean, it, the political history of the world is a ga ghastly nightmare. The notion that somehow religion is bad, but other fields are good, there's Dawkins and Hitchens, I mean, that's a nuts. But to deny that crimes have been committed by religion is equally nuts. And uh, then the other thing I used to say at the beginning of my class, uh, and this has to do with some of the comments too, I said there, are any, everyone is welcome to take this class. There's no, no, no requirements uh, that you believe anything uh, or, uh, or whatever you believe is fine with me. But I think there will be two kinds of people who will have trouble with this class. One is those who believe no religion is true, and one is those who believe only one religion is true. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Bella. We're now going to open up the conversation around the table, and to start that, I'm inviting a brief comment from uh, Professor Kang Fiseng from uh, the China Graduate School of Theology. Welcome to you, Fiseng, and we welcome your comment now. I'm going to pass the microphone, if I may, around the table. You have one here. That's fine. We're good. I think it's rather unnerving to respond to someone who has read more about your ancestors <laughs> and know them much better than you do. <laughs> uh, I'm a Chinese theologian. Uh, I have two points to make. I think I'll first make a point on theology, and then if I have time, I will uh, res uh, move on to talk about something in the chapter on China. Uh, Robert Bella, having given us profoundly rich and insightful survey of four major ancient religious traditions, he, in his uh, concluding chapter, said, the very idea of a best religious position must, in my opinion, fail. This is because religion don't differ so much in giving different answers to the same questions as in asking different questions. But if we think the other traditions are answering our questions, then it is only a matter of circular logic that those traditions will turn out to answer those questions less well than our own, which was, after all, designed to answer those questions. Uh, Rob Bellas uh, this reflects his great humility uh, in light of religious pluralism. But mm -hmm. uh, it is one thing to claim that uh, we may not have necessarily, we may not necessarily have uh, the best position, the best answer. But I think it's another thing to deny categorically that the very idea of a best position must fail. Must fail. If, however, the very idea of a best position must fail because theories are answers to different questions in different cultures, are we not also denying the very idea of universal values as democracies, human rights, equality, freedom, and justice? For this, as the Chinese government will be quick to point out that are just as well, Western answers to their own questions arising from their own cultures. In denying the possibility of the idea of a best position, are we not sleeping in this, our own as a best? And in so far that it is itself a truth claim, 
Is it not also a religious position? If people can be truly inspired by religion, which was designed to answer the questions of their own ancestors who lived at a distant time in the past, why can't they be also truly inspired by another religion which was designed to answer the questions of another people who lived at a distant place and time in the past? In denying the possibility of the idea of a best position, are we not also denying the fact of mission of people genuinely converting to another religion because they believe that they have been truly inspired by, by it? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bella, would you like to respond to that notion? The best position precludes maybe universal notions and also the possibility of changing one's convictions. I have no problem with uh, uh, missionary behavior as long as it is respectful of those to whom the mission is carried. And if it uh, leads people to change their religion, uh, that's perfectly normal and has happened many times over the ages. Uh, Again, for me, these are not uh, either-or questions. Uh, all my work is based on both and rather than either-or. At one point in Chapter 2, I say I have studied all these great traditions and I have uh, uh, come to the point where I believe there is truth in them. I have learned to see things in Confucianism or Hinduism or Buddhism that are marginal in my own Christian tradition uh, and uh, not entirely absent, but certainly not emphasized. And so my spiritual life has been enriched by uh, 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 my uh, exposure to other traditions. Uh, but then I say, uh, you uh, following uh, Fingeret, actually, not Taylor, uh, that... Uh, one must have a home. And uh, partly because religion is so much involved in practice. Uh, I couldn't become Jewish because I couldn't take up all those rules that the Jews have to, 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 to take up because I've got enough rules already from my Christian t tradition. Uh, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't think Jew the, the, the religious insights of Judaism aren't true. Obviously, no Christian can think that. But it goes far beyond that. It goes beyond uh, monotheism. Uh, there's a deep, uh, 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 even in some of the books for our uh, uh, group here, a kind of an underlying feeling that after all, monotheism is really where it's at. Uh, the, the one and the many is the deepest problem in the world. And uh, you know, you could say uh, Christianity is not monotheistic, it's tritheistic. I can tell you that plenty of non-Christians think that. We, we, we don't think that. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, that's what I learned in Sunday school. But it's an open question, I must say. And it doesn't mean that I don't believe Christ is the incarnation of God, because I do believe that. But it's still complicated. So we can't get on a high horse and say, oh, monotheism is really it and everything else is about not it. Uh, because uh, uh, the so-called non-monotheistic religions almost always have a profound sense of the one. They have a sense of the many, but they have a sense of the one. This is certainly true in Hinduism and it's true in Confucianism. Uh, so uh, 
uh, I, I, I am trying to say that, uh, yes, I do think on practical moral issues we do have to agree. On human rights, on democracy, we reach the point where we have to agree. But when it comes to theology, the questions are just too complicated to expect where one group has the right answer and all the others are wrong.